The following is a presentation of the Open Door Bible Baptist Church and Pastor Chris Tice. For more audio and video content, please check us out on the web at www.opendoornj.org. How many have memorized Romans 12, 1 and 2? It talks about because of what we've received, because of the gospel, because of what Jesus had done, and I think we would all agree, is Jesus worthy of our worship? Is he worthy? Absolutely. The answer is yes. He is worthy of our worship. So is this a pointless gathering? Is this a meaningless assembly? No. And it has nothing to do with how well we've organized it and how well we, we are performing today or what we're doing. It has everything to do with the fact that we're gathering for the purpose of worshiping a worthy Lord and Savior, and we're honoring him by this gathering. As we come together, we honor him and we seek to worship him. And Paul says that presenting ourselves as this living sacrifice, he calls it, is just a reasonable response to the gospel. Because of what Jesus has done, and he outlines that throughout the book of Romans, and many of his epistles, as you read the epistles and his letters to the churches in the New Testament, you'll get first a reminder of what Jesus has done for us, and then he gives some instructions to the church as a result of that, not that we could do those things that he's instructing to become believers, but that we naturally do the things that he's instructing and desire to do them because we are believers. And he's, he's, he's outlining that again uh, through the book of Romans. He's, he's saying, I implore you, I beseech you, I beg you, because of therefore, that's what that word is, therefore, it's to call us back to what he's already said, Brethren, the church, by the mercies of God. How many have experienced the mercies, plural, of God? Not just the mercy of God and Him withholding back the wrath of God in our lives, but how many this week have experienced God's mercy? God has been merciful to us. The Bible says His mercies are new every morning. And so we're experiencing, even this morning, the mercies of God. And God has given us mercies, whether they were traveling mercies on the way in today, or whether they're uh, throughout the rest of our day, God's just, uh, we, it's of the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed. And so we understand the mercies of God. He's imploring by the mercies of God that we would present ourselves, our bodies, who we are, all of ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy. What does that mean? As God is holy, in the way that God is, acceptable unto God through Christ, which is your reasonable service. And notice he says, and be not conformed to this world, but be, what's that next word? transformed. In other words, only the gospel can transform us. Transformation happens internally and moves out externally. In other words, confirmation is outside in. Transformation is inside out. We can be conformed to the world that we're in by outward influence, right? Have you ever been pressured to conform outwardly through a situation that you might find yourself in? Often we find ourselves in some somewhat compromising situations and influences in our lives, and those things are seeking to stamp us or conform us or to force us into a mold. And here's the truth. We can be conformed in many ways. We can be conformed in bad ways, but we can also be conformed in good ways. And what Paul is identifying here is that the gospel doesn't conform us. The gospel transforms us. See, we could be conformed into doing wrong, but we also can be conformed into doing good things. We could be conformed morally. You're not saved by conforming your life to moral things. You don't become born again by conforming. You only are born again through transformation. How many have ever sometimes, you, you tried that maybe in religion, you tried to conform yourself from bad to good. That conforming doesn't work, and that's not what the gospel is. The gospel is not confirmation. The gospel is transformation. And that's what Paul is identifying here. He says, be not conformed to this world. The system that's in this world, the ways of this world, both the ways that are moral and amoral and immoral, all those ways, we're not conformed, but we're transformed. Notice, by the renewing of our mind. If you are a child of God, if you are in Christ, you've been given a new mind a new heart, a new desire, a new way of life, a new way of living. And through that way of life, transforming happens from inside to outside. And what does that do? What does that prove? It proves that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God as we live it out. 
And then he speaks to us. He says, part of being transformed in view of God's mercy is to have a right view of ourselves. And that's what we're going to look at firstly today as we identify our spiritual serving and our spiritual gifts. We're going to look at first an accurate view of ourselves from the text. What does he say? He says, don't think of yourselves, verse 3, what? More highly than you should think. Don't think of yourself more highly than you should think. And so he avoids, he, he tells us to avoid being high-minded about ourselves. You know, despite all the warnings our culture gives us about the dangers of low self-esteem, how many have found out that there's a real danger in self-centeredness, in egocentricity, in, in being self-centered, in being selfish? There's a real danger in thinking more highly of yourself than you should. There's a lot of people who are in identity crisis today because they think too highly of themselves. A lot of times we, we say, I can be whoever I want to be because I'm above my creator. I'm above God. That's thinking more highly of yourself than you should. Thinking that I can declare on myself who I am through a declaration rather than understanding who I am through my creator and why I am and why he's made me. And most of the world's religions have identified humanity's worst problem as stemming from inflated views of our own's importance. But as Christians, it's interesting, C.S. Lewis said this. He said he knew of no one except Christians who ever admitted to being proud and conceited. Paul shows us that we must always be on the lookout for this danger. How many have found out that we tend to not view ourselves as being proud? We tend to not view ourselves as being proud. Conceit, is that difficult to self-identify? What is a conceited person? A person who doesn't know they're conceited. A proud person, a person, it's the carbon monoxide of sins. You don't sense it or identify it in yourself. But it is a dangerous thing. And Paul says, every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you should, but every one of you think soberly. Have an accurate view. Sobriety here means just what we think of. It's an alternative to drunkenness. To be sober means rigorously accurate, completely in touch with reality, in no way, shape, or form inebriated or under the influence and having your mind Sober. He says sobriety can, can, can result in, in the Christian life, humility. He doesn't say be humble or see others as better than yourselves. At this point, he warns against thinking less of your abilities than is warranted because as we look at the gospel, what does it do? Well, first, the gospel teaches us that we are all equal. The gospel teaches us that we are all equal. Notice what he says here in the passage. He says, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. Most people reading this verse have thought that the measure of faith means the amount of faith, or uh, the amount of faith that each of us is given. In the context of all Paul has said in the book of Romans, though, that's very unlikely. The word measure, it's the Greek word metron, from which we get the word meter. It's most likely, it means a standard of measurement, not an amount of measurement. In other words, Paul's saying this, all of you have been given your saving faith in Christ crucified, and this is an accurate measurement of yourself. In other words, the standard of measuring ourselves is Christ. Let me ask you a question. In order for us to be saved, who does our faith need to be in? Christ. Who is the standard of measuring ourselves? Christ. In other words, if we measure ourselves according to each other, you see how there's a problem when we read that verse and we think, some people have more faith than others, and that's how we measure ourselves. How many know that we should not come into the congregation today to measure ourselves against each other? We shouldn't be looking and saying, well, that person has more faith, this person has less faith. I have more faith. I hope I have as much faith as this person. 
We cannot accurately measure ourselves that way. How many know you get an inaccurate picture of yourself when you compare yourself to another person? How many know that when you compare yourself to another person, you generally don't really know what that person or who that person actually is in intimacy? You really don't know the struggles that person is facing or the faith challenges that they're having or the difficulties. That... As we come together today, we have somewhat an understanding of each other, but we don't have a complete understanding of each other. The measure in the Christian life is Christ, not one another. In other words, as we identify our spiritual gifts, the idea is not that we would measure ourselves against someone else. Not that we would look at each other and say, I wish I was like this person. I wish I was a stronger Christian like this person. Now, we're to be examples. We're to exhort. We're to encourage one another. But that's never supposed to be competitive. It's not supposed to be against one another, but rather that we would lift one another. Uh, that means we first need to realize that we're all equal. We're all the same. Regardless of our background, our abilities, how many are thankful today that all of our salvation is completely in Jesus Christ, and that God loves all of us equally in Jesus. He's not loving you more than me. He's not loving me more than you. He's loving us equally. I'm using the word equal, and I'm understanding that even in our culture, the word has been somewhat hijacked. We speak of equality in our culture without an understanding of what true equality is. Equality does not mean that all of us will experience the same exact life. How many have figured that out? Equality does not mean that all of us will experience the, the, the same exact life. As we look around the room, how many of us have different experiences in life? The idea is not that we would, again, measure ourselves by one another, but that we would understand our equality has to do with our value. We are all of equal value. When you look at an organization, is the boss of more value than the employee? Not necessarily. You say, well, they pay him more. Well, there may be more responsibilities that come with that. But when we look at a family, really, as we look at a family, because that's really what we're measuring here today, is any member of the family of more value than the other? No, all of us have equal value to God. God has given the same, He has paid the same price to bring us all into the family. Are you with me? He paid for me the same thing He paid for you. The same payment was necessary for all of us. He has valued us all equally and given His Son as a proof, a payment, a necessary payment for the sacrifice that had to be made for our sins. And so the first thing we understand is equality. We understand that through the gospel, it teaches us that we are all equal. The second thing that we look at is that the gospel prevents us from thinking too highly or too lowly of ourselves than we should. The gospel prevents us from thinking too highly or too lowly of ourselves than we should. I'm not going to re-preach the message, but when we went through our series on Esther, we talked about Haman's pride, and we talked about the subtleness of pride, and we talked about how pride also comes in a high form, a superiority form, and an inferior form. In other words, pride can mask itself in low thinking, just like it can in high thinking. We tend to identify pride in high thinking, but we miss pride in low thinking. In other words, it's prideful when I'm too down on myself. How many know that? How many have ever been down on yourself? We would call that a pity party. We would call that um, feeling sorry for oneself. How many have ever been there? You know, we come in singing, no one knows the troubles I've seen. You know, um, nobody likes me, everybody hates me. You know, that's kind of the, the view of ourselves. How many have found out that that's just not true? It's just not true. Have, have you been there like me, had days like that? Where despite having loving people in your life, despite having people who reaffirm who you, what your value is, it doesn't matter, you still feel low. You still feel down. What is that? It's, inf it's an inferiority form of pride. It's a self-focus, isn't it? It's me constantly looking at myself, thinking 
I deserve better than this. It's undervaluing God's mercy in my situation. It's devaluing it. It's overvaluing what I believe I deserve. And it's thinking that I don't deserve to be in the situation that I'm in. How many have ever got a flat tire on the road? Thank God for AAA. Where we sit warmly in our car and come, someone comes to the rescue and changes the, changes the tire for us. It's a wonderful thing. I don't know how our parents live without it. They had to change tires. We're spoiled, aren't we? That's the, that's the world we live in. You know, we're, oh, we've got a flat tire. I don't know what to do. Call a guy. How long is he going to be? You know, why isn't he here yet? That's the life that we live. Our parents didn't live that life. We're, 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 we're living this life. And listen, whenever something like that happens to us, how many think, I deserve this? No. Whenever we're inconvenienced, we never think we're deserved of the inconvenience. We never think we're deserved of the lack of comfort. It's too cold. I don't deserve this. I deserve wherever I am for it to be the optimal temperature, and it ought to be maintained. You know, no matter what room I'm in, what place I go in, it should be right at that, that, that place. We tend to focus on ourselves, don't we? But we tend to not notice that, and even in our culture that we live in. And so what does the gospel do? It prevents us from thinking too highly or too lowly of ourselves than we should. We shouldn't think more highly of ourselves. We shouldn't think too lowly of ourselves. We should understand uh, who we are. So the gospel prevents this in our lives. We are sinners. All our efforts only earn judgment. We are saved entirely by someone else's kindness, and that person is Jesus. And the gospel prevents us thinking in a more lowly way than we should. We're saved sinners, and so we're more loved than we'd ever imagine. We're more valued than we even understand. God loves us. And I don't know about you, I think sometimes we hear that so much as church-going people. How many... you? That, that song, Jesus Loves Me, that ought to resonate with you today. We ought not to just say to each other, God bless you, God loves you, Jesus, and just be, take that lightly. How many, it's been, it's been a little while since you've allowed God's love for you to impact you in such a way that it's actually moved you? I, I want to I restate that. How many of you, it's been a little while since you've allowed God's love for you to impact you to where it's actually moved you. How many have an educational knowledge of God's love? How many have an experiential knowledge of God's love? How many know the difference? There's a difference between academically knowing God loves me and experiencing it. I'm talking about knowing it. Knowing God loves me. Understanding God's love for me. Knowing what God's love is in a culture that doesn't know or understand love or how to give it. We live in a culture that says and talks about love and love being the solution to all the world's ills without even properly identifying what love is. Look at how the world defines love. It's feeling. It's just emotion. It's self-desire. It's self-sacrifice. It's, it's, self, uh, it's, it's getting what I want. It's self-gratification. But God's love is self-sacrifice. God's love is laying oneself down for the good of someone else. That's the kind of love that God showed to us, an unmerited, undeserved kind of love. But then what else does the gospel do? The gospel helps us to identify our distinct gifts and abilities within the body of Christ. We're to think of ourselves as having distinct gifts. Even though we're equal, we have different jobs. We have different, we're different members. In other words, we're all different too. We're not clones. We're the same in our standing in the gospel, but we're different in our varied abilities to minister to each other. That's what Paul is saying. Paul uh, says in Ephesians that every person who is saved is God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Have you ever seen the work of an artist? He's not cloning the same work over and over again. He's doing unique with his giftedness, with his ability. He's doing unique individual pieces within his ability. How many are glad that although God has made us equal within the body of Christ, he has not made us clones 
He's not made us the same. You all right, you all right today? You with me? We're, we're not clones in the body of Christ. We're the same in our standing, but we're varied in our abilities. We have each been given distinct personalities. How many of you know this? Distinct temperaments, uh, distinct histories, distinct abilities that equip us for a particular set of good works that God has created us to do. God has deliberately ordered His church as He has ordered the human body. Uh, and if, if we wanted to prove that today, it could be just given today just simply by me asking, what's the most important thing to you in the church? And we'd have a varying degree of answers. And as a pastor, I know it personally because I get on a regular basis, a weekly basis, sometimes a daily uh, basis, different people calling my attention to the most important thing that we need to be paying attention to. And they're right in the sense of what their giftedness or their abilities are. This is what they think is the most important thing. But how many know what's important to some is not as important to others? And there's a balance in the body of Christ, not for us to put too much emphasis on one giftedness, but to identify and understand all of the body of Christ is important in, the, in God's economy. Paul puts it in greater length in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If you think about the body of Christ as simply a body, maybe you're the appendix. What does the appendix do? Does anyone know? I looked uh, before, uh, before I came in here, uh, one of the number one questions asked about people is that question. What does the appendix do? And there's a very, I mean, there's like new articles about now there's a revelation. I understand there's gut health involved and good bacteria and bad bacteria. But it, it, it's a big mystery to a lot of people in the medical world. As a matter of fact, how many have ever had your appendix removed? My son had that last year, he had an appendix removed, and he asked the question then, what am I losing now that I've lost my appendix? It is kind of a scary thing that someone would cut you open, take an organ out, and suck it out the way that they do, and say, you're just fine, nothing's lacking, there's no, there's no, how many would just sign up for that, you know, that program, you know? We're going to take organs out, but you'll be all right, don't worry about it. Those are, it's kind of like when you're putting something together from Ikea, my wife loves Ikea, they basically just make you make furniture. And then you move it one time and it falls apart. It never makes more than one move. If you ever bought a bookshelf from there, you know that's the truth. It always has to be reinforced with real wood. <laughs> but we, we've, uh, we've all been in those situations where you put something together, you follow the instructions. How many ever go, there's extra parts. What are they for? Nobody knows. They gave that to me just in case I, I, I but probably somewhere we skipped a step and we'll find out later when the whole thing falls apart where, where that little piece was, was supposed to go in that place. But a lot, of, a lot of us, we look at our bodies and we think, let me ask you a question. What part of the body is unimportant that you would like to lose? Anything? I mean, we understand that we're resilient as God made us. We heal, thank God for that. Many of us have lost things. We can survive with the loss of things, and I think in the body of Christ, there's a lot of people who view themselves as the appendix of the church. If I'm there or not there, doesn't really matter. And you know how we know that? Attendance. Because whether I show up or don't show up, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really affect the body of Christ. But the truth is, it does. The truth is all of us are necessary, and I'm not just talking about an assembly or missing a service. I'm talking about you being active and using your spiritual gift within the body of Christ. A lot of times people, when, when, when pastors say that, especially we get really sensitive about attendance, I'm not trying to analyze your attendance today. I'm trying to analyze whether or not you understand your necessity in the body of Christ and that if God has called you to this body, of local believers. How many know that there's one body? We're all part of the greater body of Christ in this world. And that body is a very big body. The body of Christ is across the entire world. Nations, tribes, languages, denominations. The body of Christ is all over the world. 
there's probably not too many places, if any place that you could go, where you could not find a Christian. And I don't know about you, but that should blow your mind. Truly, the, the body of Christ is scattered all over the world because the gospel is going to all the world. That's a wonderful thing to think about, that there are gospel-preaching places in many places in the world. A lot of times we think more highly of ourselves. You say, well, there's not a denomination church like our church. There's not a church that does things the way that we do things. And I understand that and the necessity and sometimes even uh, the need for those things. But I do know that the body of Christ is a lot bigger than what a lot of times we, we acknowledge. But how many know that there's a practicality of where I am, I'm supposed to be doing my job within the greater whole of the body? How many thankful that even though you don't command it today, most of your body is functioning without you thinking about it. You're not saying heartbeat. You're not saying blood circulate. And one of those has to do with the other. You're not, you're not, you're not telling white blood cells to fight. You're, you're, you're not doing those things, but your body is functioning as God created and intended it to function. And it's doing so in a very natural way without you thinking or observing it. One of, the, one of the most encouraging things, I'll tell you today, to me, I pulled in the parking lot this morning, and I was out uh, this morning early, and I came back to the church, and I pulled in the parking lot, and when I pulled in the parking lot, it was empty. Um, only Ron was here, actually. Ron's always here. He beats me here, and I live next door. Um, but we, uh, I looked at, he, he looked over at me, watching my reaction. I don't know that in 30 years I've ever seen that area of the parking lot cleaner. I don't know if you noticed that or didn't notice that. When you go outside, Brother Juan was here yesterday. He rode his bike here because he doesn't have a license or a car. He rode his bike here, and he spent the entire day cleaning the property and the lawn without anybody telling him to do it, without anybody acknowledging it, probably with very little people other than me mentioning it right now, saying thank you. He's not even in the room to hear this. He's up in the Spanish service. But that encouraged his pastor's heart more than he would ever even know or imagine. I pulled in the parking lot and I just thought, the body of Christ. What a wonderful thing. You say, well, that's insignificant. Maybe to you it's insignificant. But to me it's miraculous. How people, and listen, whether you know it or not, there's people that were here all throughout the week in different capacities doing different things, most of them unseen most of them without request, doing things that are important to the body of Christ so that we could have this gathering today. And sometimes, if we're not careful, you know how we know sometimes we think more highly of ourselves than we should? Because we pull in, you know, right at the service time or a little after. We get here and we expect everything to be as it should. We expect all to be ready for our arrival. We, we, we have this expectation that it all almost happens like there's little elves that work it and get things done, you know, for us to be able to, you know, and, and when we come in, and listen, how many have been to a church service where you thought more highly of yourself than you should? It's that moment where you came to sit and somebody was in your seat. It's that time where someone was being distracting or someone was this or someone was that, and you're thinking... In what way, shape, or form? I'm not here for this. I'm here for this. I'm here for me. But how many know that the body of Christ is about us serving each other, helping each other, acknowledging each other? It's about us, as the Bible puts it, considering each other and provoking each other to love and to good works. And the gospel helps us to identify our distinct gifts and abilities within the body of Christ. Paul puts it again in, in 1 Corinthians 12, If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? He says God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part of the body, where would the entire body be? There are many parts but there's one body, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. 
One part cannot say to the other part that you're insignificant or unnecessary. All of us today are necessary as God has uniquely placed us into the body of Christ for a purpose. And so this image of the body prevents us from thinking more highly of ourselves than we should. We need all the other members of the church. And in a more lowly way than we should, the other members of the church need us. In other words, not too highly, we need all the bodies, all the members of the church. Not too lowly, they need us. They need us. I'm needed and I have need. I need you and you need me. Are you with me? We need each other. We have different gifts. Verse 6 of Romans 12. Crucially, we need to be remember that these gifts come to us, notice, according to the grace that is given to us. God's grace is not only seen in Him giving us His righteousness, but it's also seen in Him giving us abilities. Ephesians 4, 7-12 talks about that. These are given not for our own self-service, but they're given for us to use for the good of the body to which God has called us into. So to get a correct view of ourselves is to remember who we belong to, Jesus, where we're needed in our church body, what what we're to do, not just for ourselves, we belong to Christ, we belong to each other. Then the Bible says, every one member is one of another. In other words, we belong to each other as we belong to Christ. So there's an ownership within the body of one another, just the same way that you take ownership in your family, we're supposed to take ownership within the body of Christ, and God calls pastors to take ownership or to provide oversight to the flock that gathers and to call you into a remembrance of the gospel and what the gospel, how the gospel affects us and what it does in our lives, how it transforms us. The gospel has equipped us not just to work in ministry, but to find out what God has equipped us to do best and then to do it with all our might. Notice it says in the text, not slothful. Don't be lazy in using your giftedness in the body. Do it with fervency in spirit, serving the Lord. How many remember and need to be reminded of this often that your service to the church is is a service to the Lord and to the body of Christ? And as we serve the Lord, let me ask you this. How do you want God to receive your worship today? Shouldn't we come to Him with the worship that He calls us to? He says to come with fervency of spirit. Let me ask you a question today. What part of the gathering is unimportant to you? Maybe it's just because you're not gifted in that area and so it's not as important, but I'm glad for all of it today, whether it be the unseen parts of what people do to the seen parts. There are people uh, today in parts of the building right now which you'll never go and observe. You have no idea what's going on in those places. But the truth is we need them. They need us. And it's all part of the greater good of what God is doing within the body of Christ within the home. The second thing... I want us to look at is how to understand our spiritual gifts. I'm going to move through this part quickly because they're listed here for us. But Paul goes on to list a selection of gifts in Romans 12 that God gives to different members of his people. The list is not complete, and neither are the other lists in 1 Corinthians 12 or Ephesians chapter 4. But generally speaking, you could look at spiritual gifts, you could break them into three categories. You could say there's speaking gifts, there's leading gifts, and there's serving gifts. But today we're going to look at the specific gifts in Romans chapter number 12 within those categories. And these gifts are given so they can be expressed through ministries or particular channels of service that focus on people's needs. In other words, serving in the local New Testament church is not something that I'm saying is important. It's something that God is saying is important. And I know that we need to align ourselves with what God says is important. We need to look at what God's Word says and say, I don't want to just know God's word, I want to live God's word. How many like that today? I don't want to just know God's word, I want to live God's word. I don't want to just be a hearer of the word and understand. A lot of people pride themselves in their academic knowledge of God's word. But truly, the effect God's word has on your life is how much of God's word, not that you know, but how much of God's word you are actually living. 
There's a lot of people that are puffed up about all they know about God's word, but when you look at their life, their marriage, their family, their home, their workplace, you want to ask this question, what effect is all your knowledge having on you yourself, and are you being transformed by it? Is it changing the way you treat people? Is it changing the way you love your wife? Is it changing the way you love your husband? Is it changing the way that you love your children? Is it changing the way you love your church? Is it changing the way you love your neighbors and your community? And if it's not, the knowledge is puffing you up and you're deceiving yourself by being a hearer and not a doer. And how many times have we found ourselves in that category? Being puffed up about our knowledge of God's word. You can know God's word and still be a jerk. How many know that? And a lot of people are okay with that. Well, I can be this because I know this. If you know God's word, it's meant to affect you in such a way, literally infect you in such a way that it changes and transforms your, your DNA, who you are as a person, your identity as a believer. So now you used to be known as one thing, but now you're known as something else because of the gospel. How many have ever had that happen where family members don't understand the change that is in your life? Used to be a really angry person. Used to be a really, used to have a short fuse type person. Used to, used to be a person that fly off the handle. Used to, and now all of a sudden, now there's a patience and there's a kindness and there's a forgiveness that's in your life and they can't identify. There's a peace that's passing all of their understanding about you and they're not understanding who you are and they're trying to peg it by, you know, you tried, to, you tried Jesus or you tried church. You tried, they're, they're trying to think that you turned over a new leaf, but you know that in your heart you're just not the same anymore because the gospel's changed you. Paul goes on and he lists these gifts and I want us to understand them just simply by looking at them quickly. Notice he says, verse 6, prophecy. He's not talking about the gift of giving divinely inspired messages from God. My job to, this morning is prophecy. There's two parts of prophecy. Prophecy was to, was to foretell. That is to say something that's going to happen in the future. And how many know there's a lot of that in the Bible? There's books of prophecy, foretelling. But as much as I could be categorized as a prophet today, let me just tell you, my job is not foretelling to tell you something that's going to happen in the future. My job is, is I'm sorry, not foretelling to tell you what's going to happen in the future, but foretelling to say what God's already said in His Word. That's what the Bible is talking about here, not prophetic in the sense of, I've got a word from the Lord and you can't check it with anything except for I had some kind of vision or some kind of dream and I'm telling you and you've got to trust me. Listen, all I'm asking you to do is trust this. Trust God's word. Trust the absolute truth of the word of God. We believe, if you want to know what we believe as a church, we believe the Bible. You say literally, literally where God is literal. Historically where God is historical. Prophetically where God is prophetical. Uh, uh, poetically where God is poetic. Symbolically where God is symbolic. How many have learned to rightly divide the word of truth? Some of this Bible is allegorical. Some of it is historical. Some, is, some is, is literal. And as we rightly divide the word of truth, we understand that we can believe and understand this narrative of the Bible that God has given us, divinely inspired and preserved for us, so that we could know God and what He wants us to know about the life that He's given us. And it's the job of some, as God calls to preach, to give God's word, to foretell prophecy. Verse 7, service. This, this, this word here in verse number 7 uh, comes from the Greek word, which means practical service. People with gifts of service are good at practical tasks. They're good at administration. They're great team workers. They don't need to be in the spotlight. There's some people that are like that, and there's some people that are not like that. Some people love to serve other people, and some people just don't. And it's a spiritual gift to be good at practical tasks, to be good at administration, to not need credit for the job that you do. Service. Notice verse 7, teaching. 
It's a gift of making truth clear and understanding. A good teacher may not be a good preacher, and vice versa. And teaching gifts can vary greatly. Some are better in small groups, others in large groups. Some teach women, some teach children, some teach men, some are with peers, and so on. There's different gifts when it comes to teaching, but if you enjoy teaching God's Word, you're probably in this category. Encouragement, verse 8. It's the word parakleo, which means to come alongside. To encourage is a good translation. It's, it's also, it includes most of what we would uh, today call counseling, support, inspiration. Encouragers are not necessarily trained former counselors. They can serve as advisors, supporters, greeters, welcomers. They're just people who like to encourage other people. How many like to be encouraged? How many like when you are encouraged? Some of us like to be encouraged, and some people like to encourage. Some people just don't even need the encouragement from someone else. They just enjoy encouraging others. And how many have experienced that in the body of Christ? You've been encouraged by people. Some people, verse number 8, have the gift of giving. People with this gift not only enjoy giving in unusual proportions, but they are wise in their giving. They're wise in their gifts. Their generosity is spiritual, it's fruitful, it's God-given by His grace. As God has resourced us in different ways, even in the area of our money, we resource the body of Christ. And some people just have that gift. Some people love to give. Some people at offering time, they're excited, and others are not excited. Some people give out of necessity, and God says He loves the cheerful giver. And the cheerful giver, I think we ought to all give cheerfully. I think we all ought to encourage. I think we all ought to preach God's Word, but I think we all know the difference between someone who knows they're responsible to do something and who really desires to do it. Giving. Verse number 8, mercy. This is a gift of people specifically moved to work with the poor, with the sick, with the weak, with the prisoners, with the addicted, with the elderly, and the list could go on. People who are merciful, people who want to do for people who cannot do for them. Some people are drawn to it. Some people enjoy it. Some people love it. When we have missions trips, they want to sign up. They want to be a part of it. When we, when we go to places to serve the needy, they want to, get, they want to help. They want to have an impact. There's people with the gift of mercy. And that brings us lastly this morning to discerning your spiritual gifts. So now that we've listed them, how do we discern them? Well, there's a process. How do we discern our own spiritual gifts? Paul gives us some things to do. The first thing is self-examine. Notice verse 3. Don't think of yourself more highly. Think of yourself with sober judgment with regards to your gifts. He says, to begin with, we look at our hearts to discover our gifts, we look at our feelings, we ask this, what do I enjoy doing? What kind of ministry is satisfying and attractive to me? We can all look at our perceptions of needs. What problems do I most notice? Do I feel burdened for the poor, for people with counseling needs? Do I feel the church is disorganized and I want to help to organize it? In other words, it's possible that you are especially sensitive to the kind of needs that God has called you to meet. We can look at our effectiveness in self-examination. Am I good at what I enjoy? You know, sometimes we have a desire for a gift, but we don't actually have the gift. And if you desire a gift, that's a good thing. The Bible says if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desires a good thing and obtain a favor from the Lord but it doesn't necessarily mean that he's called. You can desire something without having that. In other words, this, if you have a gift, someone has probably noticed it in you. Someone has probably identified or helped to identify it in you. It may be the way that you've been placed in ministry or the way that you have looked to be placed. And then some people, listen, how many know that you are not gifted in music if you cannot sing? or you cannot play an instrument, or you don't know anything about music? How many have identified your lack of spiritual giftedness when it comes to music? So we understand this the same way in every area. That may be what you enjoy. How many enjoy music, but you're not good at it? 
A lot of us enjoy music. I enjoy singing. How many are glad for verses like, make a joyful noise unto the Lord? He's called us all to sing. He's called us all to worship, but that, not be, that might not be the best place for you to serve. If you don't particularly like children, don't sign up for the children's ministry. If you find yourself constantly annoyed with kids behaving like kids, well, I just want them to always act good. They're kids. They don't always act good. Well, they should. Well, you're probably not good for the kids' ministry. If you don't understand children and that kids are going to be kids, sometimes we, we have to understand, you know, that we look at different areas. We, if, if you're not particularly gifted in an area, one of the worst things you could do in the body of Christ is force yourself into an area where you are not gifted. And a lot of what happens in the body is we go, I want to do that. How many ever did that with a career? You really wanted to be an astronaut, but you found out it was not in the cards for you. I don't know what you said. A lot of people, sometimes they're not very self-aware. You know, what are you going to be? An artist. Can you paint? No. Can you draw? No. Can you compose? No. You're probably not going to be an artist. Well, I go to go to school, and they can teach it to me. You might learn some things, but it probably not. It'd probably be a monumental waste of your time. If you can't see blood without fainting, don't go into the medical field. You know, it's probably, if you don't like helping people, don't go into the medical field. If you can't be around people and serving people, don't, don't go into the ministry. <laughs> you can't, if, listen, that, that's something that we look at. We self-examine. Am I good at what I enjoy? Do people get helped from me doing it? That's a good question. Do, when I do what, what I feel is my spiritual gift, do other people get helped or do I just get helped? Do I enjoy that I do it, or do other people enjoy that I do it? And that's, that's an important thing. We look at our effectiveness. Ask those who know you to be sure that your judgment is sober. You have, an, you have a sober-mindedness about your gift and that it's accurate. Notice the second thing, experience, verse 6. Paul says, if someone has a gift, let him do it, use it. In general, you don't learn your gifts before you do ministry. You learn your gifts as you do ministry. Do you think you have a set of gifts in a particular area? Work in that area. You may revise your understanding of your gifts as you do ministry. But here's not an option for us. I have no spiritual gifts. My gift is sitting. It's not your gift. Some people act as if in their body that's the gift. How many know there are no organs in your body, whether we consider the appendix or not, as one of those things that you can just say, it can just do nothing? It's supposed to, all of the organs in the body have a function, and they're supposed to, if you're healthy, be functioning in accordance with their function. If we look at a healthy church, what is a healthy church? A healthy church is not a place where the pastor does everything. A healthy church is not a place where the pastor does everything. After all, he only works on Sunday. A healthy church is not a place where a few people in the church do most of the things. A healthy church is a place where everyone that gathers is involved in serving in some capacity. We're all identifying our spiritual gifts and saying, that's what I can do. That's how I can serve. We can make excuses or we can look at ourselves and say, God, you've saved me by your mercies. The gospel has made me so grateful and so thankful for what I have received from God that has been unmerited, that I have not earned, that I want to give back to you, God, by giving whatever it is that I can do for your glory, to edify and build others up. He says, experience, work in that area. It's best to try all kinds of ministries as a learning way of learning your spiritual aptitudes. And then study. Study. What do we do? Self-examination, experience. Uh, self experience. 
Study. Study the biblical list. These lists are probably there to help readers to take inventory. It's hard to discern your gifts without some categories of spiritual ability through which we assess ourselves. So it's helpful and important to look at the spiritual gifts lists and the the characters of the Bible to process better our own experience. How many, when you look at the disciples, you see very gifted people in different ways? People, the disciples, as we look at their lives, as you look at Bible characters, you can see people that are spiritually gifted in different ways. How many know in the Bible who Barnabas was? What was his gift? Encouragement. He was just an encourager. Paul mentions him often in the Bible as somebody who's encouraged him, who came alongside of him, who lifted him, who helped him to do what his calling was. How many figured out that Paul didn't have the gift of encouragement? He liked the encouragement that he received, but he didn't necessarily have the gift himself. Although he did encourage. I think all of us need to encourage, encourage in the Word. But I'm talking about someone who has the gift of mercy or somebody who has the gift of encouragement. Study the list, and then lastly, we're done. Use it. Do it. Serve. Once we identify a gifting, we're to use it in service of others in the church. I understand the message is very practical in nature, but it's intentional in that way. God gives His gifts as he chooses. In other words, we don't say, God, I don't like my gift. Give me another gift. We say, God, you've gifted me in this way. I want to use the gift that you've given me. How many understand when the Bible talks about the parable of the talents? Jesus has given all of us, his servants, different talents, different abilities. And he is, how many know that Jesus is coming back? Let me ask you this. How do you want Jesus to receive you into glory by His grace? You're not going to get there because you've been good. You get there through Christ alone. But as His servant, how do you want to be received? As someone who sat on your giftedness? Buried it as we see in the illustration that Jesus gives in the parable of the talents? Or somebody who took what was given and used all? as much as he could, to the glory of God. How many want to hear, well done, now, good and faithful servant? At the judgment seat of Christ, as we stand before God, and we give an account for what we've done with our lives, how many know that we're not there for the rewards? We're there for the glory of Jesus, the glory of God. And as we are acknowledged for what we've done, I hope that as we stand before God, we can say, God, in this place and time, in geography, you've placed me here. I have what I have. I am what I am. But God, I don't want to sit and be unuseful in the body. I want to be used to your glory in accordance with the grace that you've given me. I don't know about you, but sometimes we just need to get up and do something. Are you with me? Sometimes we just need to get up and do something. Sometimes... The rut that we're in is because we're sitting too long, thinking too highly or too lowly of ourselves. And we're focused on ourselves. And how many have learned that as you serve other people, you find out who you are? As you serve other people, you find out who God is and what He wants to do in in, in your life. Part of living as a sacrifice to God is to give over our abilities and our gifts to Him, to be used in His service. We'll only do this joyfully as we keep God's mercies in our view. How am I thankful for the mercies of God today? Listen, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And what is that reasonable service? It's that whole list that he gives. Serve the Lord with gladness. Use your giftedness. Some of you are especially gifted in in different ways. I'm glad for the diversity within the body of Christ. You know what that means? We need your gift. This community needs your gift. The body that gathers here needs your gift. And if you're particularly gifted, by, by the way, all of us are particularly gifted in some way. Study it. Understand it. Learn it. Ask God to identify it to you. But don't sit and do nothing. Do something to the glory of God. How many know that maybe really what you need to do next is you just need to get involved in some way? You need to get up and do something to get involved. It's a new year. 
I'm thankful for it. New year. Listen, in the world, people are making all kinds of resolutions that are about themselves. Wouldn't it be great if the church made a resolution about serving others? For us to say, hey, God has placed us here. Today is God's mercy. I don't know if I'm guaranteed tomorrow. How about you? Don't rush out. Don't miss out. Don't overlook what God has for you right here. Listen, I'm thankful for all the churches. I, last night, I, the best that I could, prayed for pastors and churches in this area, some of them that I know personally, others that I don't, and just ask God to use them because our community needs the gospel. But I thanked him, especially as it pertains to the mercy that God has shown me for you. Not everybody's here, but I thanked him for you. I thanked him for the people that God has brought to this body. Some of you have moved here. Some of God has identified that this is a place where he has gathered you worship. Many of you have come to know Christ here and been baptized here and have followed in discipleship here. And sometimes, how many know, we get a little stagnant, we get a little self-focused, and we miss out on the great privilege of using our gifts for God. There is no better place to use your gifts than in the local New Testament church. It's a wonderful place that God has called us into to weekly gather, to come together as often as we do, to come together and to just consider each other and provoke each other to love and good works. Why? Because there's a great big world that's out there, and this is the spot where God has placed the members of the body of Christ, this, this branch of the body, this part of the body is gathering here. And I'm just, I want to say to you, we have a great responsibility as for the rest of the body in the world to do our part. And you know what I know? If we do our part, the rest of the body in the world is affected and helped. And if we don't do our part, the rest of the body is hurt. And the rest of the body is not what... Listen, you know how we change the world? One church at a time. One local church at a time. One heart at a time. One person at a time. And we can do something about what happens here, can't we? How many wish you could do more to help the world? You know what you can do more to help? What happens right here. And in doing so, you can help the world. You, can, you don't have no idea how it's going to impact. Listen, let me just speak to you just very practically in this closing part of the invitation. At five years old, I sat in a pew. I sat in this church, in this church. At five years old, my parents brought me to church. I didn't come to church because I wanted to come to church. I came to church because I had people mom and dad who loved God and who brought me to church. And nobody knew, Sunday school teachers, nobody, nobody knew when I was in those classes that I was going to be the pastor of this church. Nobody knew that. But people used their spiritual gifts to minister to me. And as a result, I was taught the word of God. I was able to identify my own spiritual gift to this. And God is allowing me to still use it today within the body of Christ. Listen, that should be the story of so many others. There are children right now that if the Lord should tarry, they are not the next church, they are the church. And some of your kids are here. Some of them are in nursery. Some of them are sitting. How many know that we owe it to them to do something with what we have? You know, people, this, this building wasn't even here when we came here. But somebody used their gifts. Many people, men who, who had gifts and talents in, in building and, 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 and just hard work and labor. And they, they structured this place and built this place with their own hands so that we could come into this place. Let's not let that just blow over our heads. Now that we've been recipients of that, what will we do with what we've been given? Will we just consume it all? Or will we steward it? so that others can enjoy something even greater than what we've enjoyed because God uses us to reach more people with the gospel. And it's not about me and it's not about you. It's not about just my story, but I want to share my testimony with you because I want you to understand 
that God has a plan that's so much bigger than any one of us, but that needs all of us. If God has used this ministry in any way to be a blessing to you, please take a moment to send us an email to info at opendoornj.org. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so online at opendoornj.org. Thanks for tuning in.